following audio is from Covenant Life Fellowship. For more information about our church and to stay up to date on all sermons, events, and news, please visit our website at www.clfroseburg.com. All right, let's open our Bibles. We're going to go to Isaiah chapter 9 this morning. It is good to be with you and good to be preaching God's word to you. Uh, today we're going to start our Advent series, uh, and I don't know about you, but the last couple series, the Great Commission series, uh, the the uh, Shaping Virtue series, have been really good for my soul. They've been good for yours as well. I mean, Bruce, thank you for preaching to us last week, and and so many. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it has been really good. I've heard from many of you how the Great Commission series has given you courage to share your faith with your friends. We're so excited about that. Um, I've also heard from many of you how the Shaping Virtues series really gave you a perspective of what it is that we're trying to get done here at CLF, which is so important to us um, in the way that we kind of posture ourselves before the Lord. But today we're going to start an Advent series that's going to take us to Christmas Eve. And for those of you who are new to church or maybe you don't know what Advent means, the word Advent comes from the Latin word that means coming. And the season of Advent is a time of anticipation as we get closer and closer to Christmas Day and celebrate the birth of Jesus. And it it lasts five Sundays leading up to Christmas Day, with each Sunday having a particular theme. And Advent is really a time of joy and gratitude and longing for Christ and just appreciating His work for us. And so today we're going to look at hope. Next week we're going to look at peace, then joy, then love. And finally on Christmas Eve, uh, we're going to look at Christ. And this is a fun series. Now Advent was first heard about in church history in the 300s. At a time, as a time of prayer and fasting and, and longing and anticipation for the second coming of Jesus. Later it was introduced to cover the entire month of December leading up to Christmas Day. Uh, in, in the, in, you know, in the United States, it, Christmas usually starts somewhere after the 4th of July. You know, I mean, um, in the Philippines, they celebrate what's called the Burr months. So September, October, November, December. Once set, once September hits, Christmas decorations are everywhere. And you go into a restaurant, they're decked out in like elf gear, right? I mean, it's just mind blowing. But Advent was just simply to cover the month of December, which I like to keep it a little shorter. You know, it's just my own thing. Leading up to Christmas Day as a way of just the church meditating on Christ's first coming and then longing for his second coming. In the 1800s in Germany, a minister created what was called an Advent wreath out of an evergreen as a way of, of just talking about and, and showing a symbol of eternal life in the dead days and dark days of winter. He put 24 candles on the wreath to symbolize light in darkness, and beginning December 1, he would light a new candle each day leading up to Christmas Day. Now, we have not been permitted here to light real candles on the stage, and battery-operated candles are lame. I mean, can we just agree with that? I mean, they're lame. So what we've done is you're going to notice something on the screen... We've got some digital candles that were actually hand-drawn by Josh Stellars, who's in our church. And so, now so you'll know, we did not find out we were not permitted to do candles until Wednesday before Thanksgiving. And Josh whipped this thing together in no time, right? Because he's smart like that, right? The rest of us aren't. Okay, so you're going to notice on the Advent wreath, 
We have three purple candles, one pink candle and one white candle. Purple indicates the royalty and sovereignty of Jesus. Pink represents joy and celebration. And white symbolizes the purity and victory of Christ over darkness. And each Sunday, to go along with each theme, we're going to light a new candle on our Advent wreath. And then on Christmas Eve, we'll light the last one, which is the white one as we look at Christ. Okay, So today, you're going to notice the purple candle for hope. In the fall of 1517, heading into the winter months of, of that year, the great reformer Martin Luther called the Catholic Church to a debate. Luther's concern was that people, even in the church, were in spiritual darkness because the church had added good works to the gospel of Jesus. So basically, believe in Jesus and do a bunch of good works, and then the church would then declare that you are right before God. A few years after Luther's plea for this debate, what is known as the Great Commission or the Great, the Great Reformation swept through Europe as the gospel of grace alone, by faith alone, in Christ alone, captured people's hearts. It was during that time of renewal when the light of the glory of Christ pierced through the spiritual darkness and the reformers adopted this saying, post tenebrox luce, Luke's, which means light after darkness. Or another way to put this is after darkness, light. What an incredible theme for Christmas. After darkness, light. In most parts of the northern hemisphere, Christmas lands on the coldest, darkest time of the year. I mean, if you were to go to Australia, you would walk through the mall there in the midst of summer as they're singing, walking in a winter wonderland. I know this from my friends in Australia. That really blows my mind because I don't live in that part of the world. But in most parts of the the northern hemisphere, it's the coldest, darkest time of the year. It's at this time of the year that the light of Christ is seen in the darkness of winter. But it's also a good word for us to hear in the darkness of our world that we live in. For those of us that are younger than 60 who didn't live through the Vietnam War, who didn't go through the decadence of the 60s, who do not remember talking to relatives of the greatest generation who lived through World War II, the last several years have been some of the darkest of our lives. I've talked to some of you who are older than 60, and you just kind of think, that's no big deal, we've seen this kind of stuff before. Those of us younger than 60 are kind of freaking out because this stuff is weird. Politics have divided our nation, an uncertain economic future, Hardline ethical and gender debates that have shaken the very foundation of who we are as humans. Artificial intelligence concerns on the horizon, if not right at our doorstep. Wars in Ukraine and Israel have caused things to feel really dark. Sociologists say that the times we live in, while we're the most connected that we've ever been because of social media and technology, are some of the most isolated and depressing times in human history. That's why it's a good thing for us right now to turn our attention to the light and hope of Christmas. Now this morning, this is what we want to see in our sermon. This is in our bulletin. If you're new with us, you might, you'll get a bulletin. Uh, if you're not new with us, you've been here for a while, you know the drill. On your bulletin is a big idea. And here's the big idea. Because Christ has come, Christians can have hope in this world. Very simple. 
Very straightforward. Because Christ has come, Christians can have hope in this world. Listen, hope is not found in an upcoming election or a particular president. No matter which side of the aisle that you lean, hope is not found in how your business does now or in the future, no matter what business that you're in. Hope is not found in your health or the success of your children. Because Christ has come, Christians can have hope in this world. We have hope now, and we have hope later because of what Christ has done for us. So to look at this this morning, to look at hope, we're going to study Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 through 7. So let's stand together. Let's, as we read God's word together, we stand because this is the authoritative word of God. Isaiah 9. But there will be no gloom for her who is in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you. As with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder and the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the trampling warrior in the battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us, a child is born. To us. A son is given. The government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth, And forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. And may God bless the preaching and hearing of his word today. Thank you. You may be seated. The prophet Isaiah served the nation of Israel from 740 to 700 B.C. during very turbulent times. The people were hard-hearted. They were stubborn, and they were deaf to the word of God. Because of their sin, the Lord brought the enemies of Assyria and later Babylon to destroy their heritage, their nation, and their capital city, Jerusalem, along with their most famous religious site, the temple. During that time, the Lord called Isaiah, the son of a nobleman, to leave his wealth and prosperity behind and speak God's word to his people as a prophet. Isaiah was captured. I mean, he was, he was captured by a vision of the holy God of the universe because he had seen him in Isaiah chapter six 
high and lifted up. And his vision consisted of warnings to the nation of Israel of what was coming. In chapter 7 and 8 of Isaiah, you're going to notice that he warned the nation of Israel of the coming invasion of the Assyrians. It was as if Isaiah saw the darkness descending on his nation like Gandalf saw the War of the Ring coming at the end of the Third Age in the Lord of the Rings. It's during that time of darkness and gloom sitting over the nation that Isaiah chapter 9 was written. Assyria was on the doorstep. Destruction was coming. Fear filling the city. And the enemy preparing for war is when Isaiah chapter 9 was written. So so with that backdrop and that understanding in mind, let's look at our first point in your outline, which is what does hope look like? I don't know if we can understand the fear and the tension in the nation of Israel at this moment. Maybe unless we've been in war, if those of you who have, you would understand this tension, this fear, this nerve-wracking moment. Most of us who've not been in war don't know what this is like. We, we've not had a na- our nation invaded, thank God. And speaking of this coming day, Isaiah chapter 8 verse 22 struck a, a really hard and cord with, and lays it on thick, talking about what it was going to be like when the Assyrians come. And here's what Isaiah wrote. He said, and they will look to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. Now look, just look at those words for a moment. I mean, the gloom of anguish, distress, thick darkness. During that prophecy of darkness, Isaiah gave us the vision of hope of Isaiah chapter 9. So you got to lay it up against the backdrop of what Isaiah saw is coming. Lay it over the top of the backdrop of knowing very clearly of how dark this time was in their nation. And then you're going to notice how Isaiah begins to just speak words of hope to the people. Notice the transitions that he does and the hope that he gives them throughout the text. Verse 1, Isaiah named the northern tribes of Israel, whom the Assyrians would first run over the top of. So these are the people that the Assyrians would come to first and they would just run over the top of them. And he said to them, there would be no gloom in their anguish. How do you do that? No gloom in your anguish. Anguish seems like gloom. They were once brought into contempt, but in the latter time, he says, it will be glorious. Notice the transition. They go from gloom to glory. Verse 2 tells us that he said they would go from darkness to light. Though they walked in darkness, they will see a great light. Though they dwelt in thick darkness, a light has shone to them. Verse 3, they would go from sorrow to great joy. Joy like the reaping of a great harvest and having all of their needs met. Joy like the relief of winning a great military conflict and enjoying the spoils of war. Verses 4 and 5, they would go from oppression to victory. The victory would be so miraculous, Isaiah says, that it would be like one of the old victories in Israel's history. And he mentions the Midianites. And if you know the story of the Midianites, basically what happened was the Midianites were thousands upon thousands, and the Lord took just 300 of them, of Israelites, clanked some pots together, 
and they begin to destroy one another. Isaiah says the victory over these people, over the Assyrians, would be so vast that the enemies would become a useful tool to keep them warm. You notice they would roll up their garments, burn them in the fire. For what reason? To keep the people of Israel warm when it was cold. The oppressor would become the servant. See, what what does hope look like, Isaiah would say to us? It looks like going from gloom to glory, from darkness to light, from sorrow to joy, and from oppression to victory. That's what hope would look like. But notice a couple things in the text that help us see something else about Isaiah's hope. Notice first that this is only something that God does. Notice verse 1. He has made glorious the way of the sea, and the land would become glorious. Verse 2, the Lord implied, opened their eyes to see the light. Verse 3, you, the Lord, have multiplied the nation. You, the Lord, have increased its joy. They will rejoice before you, the Lord. Verse 4, you, the Lord, have broken the yoke, the staff, and the rod of the oppressor. Indicating something very important to us as believers in Christ. God's work always brings hope. When God is at work, we have every reason to have hope. Christian, aren't you glad that your God is at work? There's not one molecule in this universe that runs rogue to your God because he is always at work. And aren't you glad? Aren't you glad? But second, notice how most of the things mentioned in the text are in different tenses. They're in the past tense and present tense. And it rotates back and forth. Verse 1, has made glorious. Verse 2, have seen a great light and has light shone. Verse 3, multiplied, increased. They rejoice before you, are glad. See, past, present, all mixed in together. Verse 4, you have broken. You might say, what? Why is that important? It's important because... Isaiah saw the future event from past and present tense. See, this is what hope looks like. Hope sees all that God has promised as past tense as a certain reality for now and later. Hope is a future certainty because of past promises. What hope is, Hope stirs your heart to know what God has promised, and it gives you hope for now and hope for later. Alec Mordier, in quoting on this passage, says this, Isaiah insists here that hope is a present reality, part of the constitution of the now. The darkness is true, but it's not the whole truth. And certainly not the fundamental truth. Now think about how remarkable this is for this moment. Assyria, the world's foremost power, is stalking Israel like a ravenous lion waiting to pounce. And Israel's foremost prophet, Isaiah, predicted it's coming. It's coming soon. And during that prediction, we get these promises. This means there's already the promise of hope before the coming destruction. 
In Isaiah's mind, God's promises are as good as done way before they ever come to pass. I mean, we need this. Don't we need this? I need this. You know what this means? This means that before the health diagno- the bad health diagnosis is given to you, the Lord's past promise that he will always be with you is true and is certain. This means that before hardships rip your heart out, because they will, the Lord's past promise that he will catch all your tears in a bottle and will care for you like a father and like a mother that he cares for you is true. This means that before an election year, before economic successes or failures, the Lord's past promises to meet all of your needs in Christ Jesus are true. In darkness, light. During hopeless seasons, hope. Again, Dr. Mortier wrote this, the eye of faith looks at all this but affirms, real though it is, it is not the real reality. As always, the people of God must decide what reading of their experiences they will live by. Which one are you living by, Christian? Are they to look at the darkness, the hopelessness, the dream shattered, and conclude that God has forgotten them? Or are they to recall His past mercies, to remember His present promises, and to make great affirmations of faith? See, hope looks like past promises in the present tense. Past promises as present realities. And what's fascinating about Isaiah's vision, and you're going to see this as you read the text, is that verses 1 through 5 are the result of an event. Verses 1 through 5 are the results of verses 6 through 7. And verses 6 through 7 are more than an event. They're about a person. This is our second point, which is who does hope look like? Isaiah says hope looks like a child being born, a son being given to us. You see this in verse 6, don't you? It's probably one of the most quoted verses during the Christmas season. A child is born. A son is given. And this promise was given 700 years before it was fulfilled. Yet Isaiah spoke it in which tense? The present tense. The birth of this child is what turns Gloom into glory and sorrow into joy. This child is the one who breaks the oppressor and shines light into darkness. And friends, that would tell us this is no ordinary child. This child is a ruler, a king, and has a government given to him. You're going to remember, if you look back in the text in verse 4, this will come up on the screen for you. The oppressor's shoulder, whether that was Assyria, Babylon, or to put it in our context, the devil or our sin was carrying a rod, a staff, a yoke of burden, pain, and suffering. 
But look with me, if you will, at what's on this child's shoulders. He's got a government. He's got a kingdom. He's got a people resting on his shoulders. And we get this these wonderful statements about this child. But you're going to notice something. These statements about this characteristics of his government are because these are the characteristics of this child. You'll notice he's a wonderful counselor, meaning his government is the wisest of all governments. The word wonderful implies supernatural, which tells us that his counsel and his government are supernaturally wise. And it rests upon his shoulders. Not for beating you, not for harming you, but for wisdom and care. It's a strong government because he's the mighty God. See, this child is not just a human. He is the mighty God, and his government is powerful enough to conquer any foe that would stand in his way. But he's also the everlasting father, which means his government is an eternally compassionate government. As a father cares for his children, this child cares for those under his care and rule. And notice he does this from everlasting to everlasting. I was thinking of the prophets who said, when God speaking of his people said, I have loved you with an everlasting love. His government is peaceful because he is the prince of peace. The implication is that this prince reigns in peace with his people and his people live in peace with one another. And verse 7 tells us it's an expansive, unlimited government, meaning there's no end to his rule. Justice and righteousness hold sway. And when all is said and done, when he rolls up all the history books like a scroll, there is there are no pockets of rebellion in his government. This is no ordinary child. Hope looks like a child being born and a son who is given. But who who is this child? Who Who are we looking at here? Well, throughout the Bible, we're told this child is Jesus Christ. He's the one who fulfilled all that this text speaks about. Let me just show you a couple references about this. It'll help you. When this child comes, remember, he will bring light to darkness. We saw this in verses 1 and 2. In Matthew 4, Matthew wrote this concerning Jesus. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum, by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali. We've heard those words before. So that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and a shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. This child will be the mighty God. And we're told in Colossians chapter 2 verse 9 that Jesus is the mighty God. When Paul wrote in him, in Jesus The whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Meaning he is God in human flesh. And this child will sit on the throne of David and will establish that throne forever. This promise was made by God to Israel's greatest king, David. In Isaiah 7, the Lord promised to David, here's what he said to him. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you. 
who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. And before Jesus was born, the angel Gabriel told Mary about her son, Jesus, that he'll be great. He'll be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. See, Jesus is this promised child of Isaiah 9. He is what hope looks like. In Jesus, Isaiah 9 has been fulfilled. Unto us, a king is born. Unto us, a savior is given. Because in Jesus, the gloom and darkness of our sin and the penalty of God hanging over us has been turned to glory. In place of being a people of wrath and children of wrath like the rest of mankind, we are now children of grace and heirs according to a promise. In Jesus, we have been transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of God's beloved Son, which is the kingdom of light. In Jesus, the sorrow of our sins have been wiped away for the joy of our salvation. In Jesus, we are no longer oppressed by the enemy of our souls, and he has been crushed under our Savior's feet. Why? Because hope looks like Jesus. Now this text reveals to us the hope of Christmas. It reveals to us the hope of Advent in dark seasons, or let's be honest, in any dark season. And some of you are in those dark seasons. For some of you, Christmas season is the darkest time of the year. You've lost a loved one that you wish was here. Maybe when you were a kid that your parents did not treat Christmas as a big deal, and to you it just it's it's just gloomy. Maybe for some of you, You've got bad things hanging over you. Your marriage is struggling. Health is hard. Your kids are a train wreck and you don't know what to do. And you've lost some hope. This text reveals to us the hope of Christ. The hope of Christmas. Let me show you three quick things that we can take from this text that I think will encourage you. The first is that the child has come. And so is his reign. I don't want you to miss this. If Jesus is hope in human flesh, and his coming brings his eternal rule, then listen, we're not waiting 700 years for it to be started. We're looking back on what Isaiah anticipated. that, That should just... Make you marvel. Isaiah longed to look into these things. We are experiencing it. Jesus' wise, strong, compassionate, and peaceful reign has come. And friend, listen, it will never end. And it will always, always increase. His gospel is the power of God and the salvation to any who believe. There is no power on earth or in the universe that will stop the work of his church. He has promised that. 
But this is not just a a half glass full optimistic view of living or a power of positive thinking that if we just speak things, they manifest. No, 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 no. Notice what Isaiah's prophecy ends with. This will all happen and is happening because the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish it. The son's coming, the son's kingdom, the son's reign, the extension of his rule, the son's wisdom, the son's strength, the son's compassion, the son's peace will never stop moving forward because the zeal of God will accomplish it. Meaning, don't miss this. Jesus has come and that gives you every reason for hope in this dark world next year's election oh no no cannot stop his reign nations at war with other nations cannot stop the increase of his government no matter the triumph or the tragedy we have reason for hope because the sun has come and so has his reign see but the second thing this text shows you is that hope is as good as done that's what it means it's as good as done Isaiah lived with such certainty that he saw the future in the present tense because of the past promises of God. Now think about that for a moment. Because it doesn't take long while living in this Genesis 3 fallen world to realize that the son's rule and reign has not yet been realized. We're living in this time that theologians would call, no matter what side of the in times debate that you land on, we're living in the now and not yet. Meaning, we experience some things now of the kingdom of God. Gathering together in the church is an experience like the kingdom of God. Because the church is like an outpost of heaven. We get to hang out together, work on being at peace with one another, forgive each other, apply the gospel to our lives and be changed. See? But we also walk out here into a Genesis 3 world and we see... People harming one another. We live in the now and not yet. And here's what we have a tendency to do. We have a tendency to let the not yet spoil our hope from seeing the past promises being as good in the present as they will be in the future. Is living in this Genesis 3 fallen world keeping you from seeing the past promises of God as good as done? See, this text shows us that hope equals as good as done. It shows us that a promise given 700 years before it was fulfilled, and that shows us the promises of God will always be fulfilled. The promises of God are not like going through McDonald's. You make your order, and 30 seconds later, you got your food. It's not how it works. God is slow about his promises, but he's not, he's not untimely. See, the reason the promises of God are as good as done is because the promises of God are dependent upon the character of God. And friend, if you understand the character of your God, here's what you know about him. He never changes. He is always good. He is always compassionate and loving toward his people. 
He always has the best in mind for the end product of his people, and he will always accomplish everything according to the kind counsel of his own will, which is the perfect, most omniscient will in all the universe. Therefore, his promises will never change, and his promises will always be fulfilled. So don't don't miss this hope at Christmas. Declaring to you the coming of this son that we celebrate in this Christmas season is saying to us the promises of God are as good as done. Don't let the craziness and unfaithfulness of this world rob you of the hope of Christ. But finally, doesn't this text show us something else? It shows us that light always overcomes darkness. It's a funny thing that happens when you walk into a room and you flip on a light, right? I mean, it's immediately dark, and then you flip it on it. Darkness cannot overcome light. When I think of this point and what you see in the text, I'm reminded of John chapter 1 when John wrote these words. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. Now listen to this. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines into the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. See, Jesus has come into the world. The Word became flesh. God incarnate. Emmanuel, God with us. The light. And the darkness has not overcome it because it can't and it won't. See, these dark days of winter, the shortest days of the year, the cold and the rain that keeps us inside cannot overcome the light of Christ. These dark days of national turmoils, economies on a teeter-totter, nations warring against other nations, all the personal things you might have going on will not overcome the hope of the rule of the Son of God. Christian, your king has come and his kingdom will not fail. His promises are as good as done and Jesus is the hope of Christmas. So listen, this morning, I I am fully convinced that you came in the room and some of us came in the room, we've had bad news for the last month. We have anxieties that are beyond belief. We walk around in this world and we wonder, and we feel like everything around us is winning except the gospel. And when you come to church on a Sunday morning, what church is to do for you is to remind you of the real reality. There is a king who has come in human flesh to live perfectly in your place because you can't and you won't. To die in your place. To satisfy the penalty of God that hangs over your life. And when he went to the grave, three days later, God raised him from the dead because of his perfect life. And that king ascended to heaven, where he right now, now just processes, right now, sits at the right hand of God, momently, by moment, intercedes for you, 
welcomes you into the throne room and presence of God because of his work on your behalf. He has clothed you with his righteousness in exchange for your sin. And he momently prays for you and cares for you and administrates all the work of his kingdom, accomplishing all that he promised to do. And his father has promised the zeal of the Lord of hosts will get it done. And that king has come so that when you walk in the door of a church service and you've been a little discouraged, you are reminded of the real reality. So we're going to do something different this morning as we pray. You're going to pray. I'm going to read to you promises from God's word that Christ has given to you. Okay? That's what we're going to do. So we're going to close. won't be long. But I want you to let these promises soak into your heart about what Christ has done for you. 1 Peter chapter 1. Peter wrote these words. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. You have been born again to a living hope, and you have an inheritance waiting for you, that is imperishable and full of glory. Romans 5 says, Through Christ, you have obtained access by faith into this grace in which you stand, and you can rejoice in hope in the glory of God. Not only that, but you can rejoice in your sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And listen, hope will not put you to shame. Because God's love has been poured into your heart through the Holy Spirit who has been given to you. And Titus chapter 2 declares these words to you. For by the grace of God, for the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation to all people. That's you. Training you to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age, in this Genesis 3 age, waiting for your blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself up for you to redeem you from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. As I close this morning, the worship team can come on up. I'm going to pray this prayer over you. 
from Ephesians chapter 1. When Paul prayed this for us and for the Ephesians, For this reason I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints. I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your faith, of your heart enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places who is far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named not only in this age but also in the one to come. And God put all things under Jesus' feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body. The fullness of him who fills all in all. Father, you know your people and you know the hopelessness which would they sit. May you give them a spirit of wisdom and revelation to know what is the hope of their calling. Namely, it is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Remind them that their king has come. They're going to walk out this door and it's going to feel like their king is not even anywhere remotely to be seen. Remind them of the present reality of the past promise. The king has come. This week they're going to sin against you. They're going to violate your law. Remind them that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Remind them that when they confess their sin to you, you are faithful and just to forgive them of their sin and give them the power to change. When they have a broken relationship, remind them that you have given them the power to be ministers of reconciliation through the power of the gospel. Father, enlighten their hearts to hope. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. This sermon has been proudly given in response to cherishing the gospel of Jesus Christ. Be sure to check out our YouTube channel and subscribe to watch all our sermons online. For more information about Covenant Life Fellowship, visit us on the web at www.clfroseburg.com.